the New York, Londons, and Parises of today. And Corinth is one of those places. It was a metropolitan city. It was pluralistic in every way. There were many belief systems. It was a marketplace of ideas. There were many gods, many opportunities for worship. And into that, Paul plants a church. And Paul says there's only one true God. It's Yahweh, the God of the Bible, the God who created. And so what he does is, he says with all the options out there, you have to be very careful where you worship or how you worship. And so last week we looked at this idea that Paul addressed this cultural concept that a practice that is inherently spiritual in origin, no matter what you think of it, you need to not participate in it, no matter where it comes from, because it doesn't connect to the one true God. It's, it comes from, Paul says, you're participating in a table of demons in that sense, that it's a lie, it's not from the God who's the God of truth. And so Paul very much, in Corinthians, has this countercultural message. And here's one thing about the gospel. The gospel is an equal opportunity offender. It offends every culture. It should offend every person at some point. That it should cut across the grain of some belief that we have or something that we hold dear. And so the gospel speaks into every culture and every situation to say there are some things that are okay, but there are some other things that you might want to reconsider. And so Paul last week said, judge for yourselves. So he's appealing to us as reasonable people to think about what I am saying. And so Paul now presents the believer with some freedom. And there's always the danger that the Christian believer will become selfishly concerned about their own liberty and unconcerned then about the others. We live in a culture and in a world, in in our country, where freedom and the rights to do what we want to do are are very much front and center of, of of our existence. And Paul is just challenging us. Just think about other people, to think about the exercise of your rights. And already we can anticipate the Corinthians saying, Paul, what you just said about not participating in the Lord's Supper and not participating in other cultural practices, well, that doesn't apply to me. And so in verse 23, he goes on and he starts to quote some slogans again. We looked at this throughout Corinthians, that the Corinthians had these slogans that they lived by. It was these moral principles that they had. And so Paul quotes them and then he qualifies them. And so in verse 23, he says, I have the right to do anything you say. Paul is thinking the Corinthians minds and they say, I have the right to do anything. But he qualifies it. Not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. And so Paul is talking about those who are unconcerned about their consequences and about their freedom. We say, I can do whatever I want. And Paul says, yes, technically you can, but not everything is beneficial and, and not everything is constructive. Beneficial or constructive, not only for you, but for others around you, the influence that you have. Permission is not the sole criteria whether something is right or wrong. Just because we are allowed to do something doesn't mean we should do it. Not only do we question the permissibility of ethical matters, but we are asked these questions whether they build up or they're beneficial. And so Paul would say the same thing to us in our culture. Yes, we can say, I have the right to do anything. We have those slogans, who made you my boss? I can do whatever I want. Paul says, technically that's true. But not everything is beneficial. Not everything is going to build up. Not everything is constructive. And so here is what Paul is going to address. Paul is going to address the idol of self. 
the pagan cultures have their idols, and Paul understood that from the Corinthians, that they had their idols. Like, you go to the temple and worship the idol. But in our culture and in our world, we don't necessarily have idols as in statues and places that we go to worship. But if we still have our idols. And Paul's been talking about idolatry. And whenever we replace trust in the one true God, we start to build an idol. And so what Paul is going to address is our, is our Western idol of self that we are self-sufficient, that we have our, our, our right to do whatever we want. We have deified the self in our culture, that I am the ultimate arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. Everything about me is, is right and everyone else is wrong. But if you think about the ultimate temptation in the garden, that was the temptation that serpent offered to Eve. Look at that on your notes. Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 and 5. The serpent comes to Eve and says, You will, certainly, you will not certainly die. The serpent said to the woman, For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The temptation in the garden was this. The temptation was that you know better than God. And our struggles and the root of our sin and the things that we have is really that same temptation, if we're honest. There's a tension that we say we know better than God. And so what we are doing is we now make an idol of ourselves. You say, well, I don't have an idol of myself. I want to give you three quick tests to see if possibly you have an idol problem with yourself. The first one is arrogance. If you think this, I'm always right, my way is the best, then you might be struggling with the idol of self. When is the last time you said, I was wrong, and you were right, or I should have listened to you, or I like your idea better? You see, if we have this sense of arrogance, we think that we are always right and everyone else is wrong, and what we've done is we've deified self, we made an idol of ourself. Here's the truth of the matter. We're not always right. Ooh, it's hard to say that even, isn't it? (laughs) We're not always right, but we think we are. And if we don't allow input, we don't have a teachable spirit. And if we have this arrogant problem that we just walk through life, that everyone else is wrong and I'm right, we may have an idol of self. Here's a second test to see if we have an idol problem with self is insecurity. We are consumed with what others think. And we are terrified when we want to try something because we are terrified about failing. One of the things about idol of self is we are so afraid to step out and to do something because we are terrified of failing because we are worried about what other people are going to think. We are very insecure. We are very much at the whim of other people's opinions about what they think of us. And when you are a God, it is all about you. But we live with this sense of insecurity that we're always concerned and we're terrified that somebody may not be thinking well of us. And so we adjust our image and we do different things in different places. We may have a problem with the idol of self. A third test for us is defensiveness. Have you ever found that the slightest criticism or the blandest criticism or the slightest suggestion is a personal attack? Someone comes and just asks a question. It could be a spouse. It could be even a kid. It could be a supervisor. It could be a neighbor. Hey, have you ever thought about raking the leaves up in your yard? What? 
They hate me. They don't like me. And we are so defensive. Any little suggestion comes across as a personal attack. And when you're a God, you need to be perfect. And you don't want any suggestions or any input. And so we have this problem with self. We say, well, you know, I don't really worship myself. I don't really put myself on a pedestal. Here's the problem with saying that you've already made an idol of yourself by saying you haven't put yourself on a pedestal. Why? Because I think I'm a little better than I am. I'm no God at all. But yeah, you are in saying that. You are setting yourself apart from everybody else. And from the Garden of Eden until today, we all struggle with the idol of self. So if you find yourself a little arrogant, having some insecurity, a little defensive, you may have a problem with the idol of self. Here's what Paul says. In verse 23, he says, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. And then what does he say? No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. At Corinth, some were using this freedom slogan in order to eat the food that was sacrificed to idols. This was the whole reason Paul is writing from chapter 8 to chapter 10. And what he's saying is, the believer said, listen, I can do whatever I want. I know an idol isn't anything. I can go into the temple and I can celebrate and I can, or not celebrate, I can go and eat the food. I can buy the food in the marketplace and, and I can do whatever I want. And Paul says, but, but listen, think about this. It's not beneficial, and it doesn't build up. Why? Because he says, seek the good of others and not your own good. Here's what Paul says. It's not about you. And isn't the gospel tell us the same thing? The gospel says what? It is not about you. The Bible says it is not about you. Who's it about? It's about God. We are either God-centered in our life, or we are self-centered in our life. But listen, life is not about you. Life is not a perpetual birthday party for you. You get the funny little hat and the horn and everybody brings you presents and gives you cards. That's not life. And so Paul says, you seek the good of other people. And so what Paul says is, there's a great model for this. And the model is what? Is Jesus and his life and his ministry. And so what Paul says is this, even though you can go into the temple and you can eat the food, you have a right to do that. You should not do that because it's not beneficial. You should not do that because it doesn't build up. Paul, on the one hand, is saying, yes, we are free. We know the idol is nothing. And we know that there's only one true God. But the qualifier for that is, even though we know that, you should not do that. Paul is not saying that a Christian is free to do anything that we want, participate in any human behavior that we want, and participate or partake of any object that we want, or even are allowed to think what we want. He's not saying that all actions are lawful, He says, even if it's so called allowed, I should not do it. It's the difference between could and should. And that's what really Paul's arguing is, could I do this? Yeah, I could. I could go into the temple and eat the food. I I could do that. And that's where we land when the idol of self, we only go to the could side. And yes, I, I can do this. I can do this because I know I'm a know-it-all that Paul talked about. Or I can do this because I have some level of intellectual knowledge. Paul's saying that's not the point. 
The point isn't, could you do it? The point is, should you do it? And that's the question we need to ask ourselves today. It's not, could I do this? But should I do this? It's not that I'm physically capable and that there's no direct command from the Lord, thou shalt not do this. That's not what Paul's saying. Paul is saying we can do some things, but what he says is, should you do these things? And how would that change our thinking? How would that change our lives if I asked the question, should I do this, not could I do this? Yes, I could eat the whole box of Krispy Kreme donuts. I could do that. I could, right? You could too. You could. But the question is, should you do that? I can order the 8-ounce steak, or I could order the 32-ounce steak. (laughs) It's not could I, but should I? And that's all Paul is saying, is not that we can't do these things, but should we do these things? And the qualifier is what? That we should not seek our own good, but the good of others. And so to the Corinthians, in their multi, uh, their pluralistic culture, that these were shocking words, as shocking as they are to us sometimes in a world of meism, in a world of me as a god and my, myself as an idol. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Those are, those are cross-cultural things that the gospel cuts across and says, no, just because you could do it doesn't mean you should do it. The Christian is not simply to help the neighbor, but to actively seek the good of the neighbor. And those are two different things. Helping a neighbor is when I see something, but seeking the good is being intentional about it. And so here's what Paul says. There are some constructive and beneficial instructions. I'm going to just give you a couple today. For us to break the God of me and to help seek the good of others... So, so here's what he says in, uh, in verse 25, chapter 10. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. That word meat market is the, is the only time it's used in the New Testament. What happens in the temple, if they had meat left over, what would they do? They wouldn't throw it away. They would sell it. And so they would take it to the meat market. So even if a believer did not go to the temple, they could potentially get some of this meat at the market where it was sold then. And so even if they never went into a pagan temple, Paul says this, there's some of that meat that makes its way out into the, into the market. He says, so eat it without raising the questions of conscience for the, um, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever, he says, invites you to a meal and you want to go eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it both for the sake of the one who told you and the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. See what Paul's doing? It's not could you, it's should you. It's not about you, it's about the other person. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? For if I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? The principle, the first principle that Paul gives us, a beneficial construction is this, is that actively seek the good of other people. It would be amazing the amount of meat in the Corinthian meat market that had been offered in a pagan temple. There were temples everywhere, and there were many sacrifices that were going on. And so Paul says, eat eat everything without raising an issue of conscience. It seems at first contradictory. First, he has a ban on all this food, and then he says what? Eat without what? Raising 
conscience. And so what he says is, he quotes Psalm 24, he says what? The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. What Paul is saying is that there's still only one true God and everything comes from him. Whether you think it came from a pagan God or not, it only comes from God. Everything comes from him. And he quotes Psalm 24, 1. And so what he says is everything comes from God. And so what he's saying is there is no demonization of the food. So if I'm in Corinth and I go by the meat market and I want to buy some meat, there was not some meat that was different looking or different spiritually. It was just meat in the meat market. Now, some of it might have been in the temple and some of it may not. But what Paul's saying is that everything belongs to God. So there's not an inherent demonization of this of this food. Everything belongs to God. And so in the place of Paul's command, he says, eat, feel free to buy it and eat it because food and drink are part of God's creation and been given to us as people to be enjoyed. Romans 14, 14 says this. I'm convinced, being fully persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself. But if anyone regards something as unclean, then for that person, it's unclean. So Paul says, this meat is not unclean in itself. It may have been in the temple, and now it may be here, but there's nothing unclean in the meat. What makes it unclean is the person assigns something to it. The pagan worshiper assigns some meaning to this meat, and that's what Paul's going to get to in a minute. And so what Paul is saying is everything belongs to God. And so verse 27 says this, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. What should a Christian do if I'm invited to a pagan home for a meal? Well, I know what many Christians will do. They will say, I'm not going to go because I don't want to be defiled. I don't want to go into some enemy territory. And Paul's saying, that's not how this works. There is nothing inherently demonic about the meat. A believer may go with an unbeliever and you may eat with a clear conscience of what is put before you. And the Christian is under no obligation to inquire about the nature of the food. We know people that do that. You put something down before them. What's in this? Where did this come from? Was this organic? Was it not? What is this? Paul's saying, Christians, don't do it. You just eat what's put before you. Hospitality, somebody's giving you a gift. You don't start looking at it and start asking questions. Paul says, just don't do it. You, you, are, you have the freedom as a believer to go to eat. And it, what you were not supposed to do as the guest was start peppering the host with all kinds of questions. Just eat it. You're a guest in their home. And so what Paul's doing is he's tipping the scales in favor of what? Freedom to eat over not eating or not dealing with it. He says, go if you like and eat and don't ask questions. You're not the judge and jury over the food that's placed before you. Also, Paul says, is is telling us, don't be paranoid about the unspoken thoughts of others. And he's not saying you, you, you guess their motives and you start wondering what they're thinking, and you start wondering why they put this before you, Paul says, you just go as a believer. Everything belongs to God. There's nothing inherently wrong with this food, as long as it's cooked well, you know, it's not poisonous or something. Like, there's nothing inherently spiritually wrong with this food. You eat it until, look what he says in verse 28. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it. Paul says, you go, 
You enjoy yourself. You're not sinning. You're not doing anything wrong. There's nothing spiritual that's going to come over your life. You do this and have a good time. Enjoy the fellowship with unbelievers and do that until you know the difference. He says someone uses the term has been offered in sacrifice. This is a term that a pagan would use. A has been offered in sacrifice is a technical term. So here's what Paul's saying. The, the Christian is at the home of a non-believer pagan, pagan and the, the pagan says, hey, Uh, You know that food's been offered to an idol. Paul says, now you've got a choice. You didn't go in questioning. You didn't go in asking where all this came from. You didn't ask all kinds of questions. But now you know the difference. And so the person who told you is a pagan, why would Paul say, if someone says this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it? Why would Paul say that? In short, it would be a poor witness on your part as one who professes faith in the one true God, and you know now that idols are nothing. So Paul says you abstain for what? Both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. And so Paul says, now that you find out this food has been offered, I don't want you to eat it, not because of you, but because of what? Because of them. They just told you it was offered to a pagan. And so Paul says, now you have a choice. If a Christian goes in, it's it's amazing how non-believers know how believers should act. Right? We just get that, right? Non-believers. And partly it's because of the poor witness of believers. And sometimes it's misinformation, but sometimes it's true. And so this is one of those true cases where, as a Christian, you cannot participate in a, in a food that's been offered to an idol because you are now participating. And so if the Christian Corinthians eat this food regardless, they will compromise their confession about the one true God. So the Christian's going in and saying, I believe in the one true God. I'm a follower of Jesus. I've given my life to the one true God. And the pagan says, hey, you know that food's been offered to an idol. Now, if the Christian eats it, what happens? Divided loyalties. The unbelievers are now looking and saying, wait a minute. I I thought you just said you were devoted to this one true God. And now we know by your participation in this food that you are compromising your loyalties. You are now having a divided heart. And so Paul's point is this, is that because it will send the, it, 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 it hurts your testimony, The Christians say this, the pagan gods are nothing. There's only one true God. And now when the meat has been offered to idols and they participate, the unbeliever, here's what happens. The unbeliever looks at the Christian and says, oh, this meat was just offered in an idol. And me as a pagan, that's something like this meat is special. And now you as a Christian are eating the meat And I just told you that this meat was offered to an idol. So now that also means you think this meat is something special, or at least the very least you don't care. So now me as a pagan, I am going to be reaffirmed in my beliefs. You following Paul's logic? Paul says... That as the, you're looking at this from the pagan's perspective, not from your perspective. And so the pagan knows, the pagan believes and thinks there's something special about this meat. And as a, as a Christian, when you find that out in that company and you eat that special meat, you are also saying, oh, this meat is special. And you are 
not giving the pagan a reason then to leave the life of idolatry and serve the one true God. Because why? Because he looks at you as a believer and says, oh, you eat the meat too. I eat the meat. You eat the meat. We eat the meat. We're okay. And that's what Paul says. As Paul says, you are, you are, you are to watch out for the, for the per other person that you should not use your knowledge or your liberty to destroy someone else. Just because you know doesn't mean it. The unbeliever will be strengthened in his convictions about the idol. And so by the believer eating the meat, he would be preaching to the pagan that you are fine. There's no difference between you and me. The Christian is not to say, well, if my eating offends you, brothers, that's your problem, not mine. I know it's wrong, but I'm still going to eat it. No, no, no. Paul says, no, no, you don't eat it. He, he gives an emphatic no. He says, why? Because of the other person's conscience. Look at verse 29. He says, I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. It's not a conscience as in morality, as in right or wrong. It, it, it better means consciousness. In other words, the pagan is, has a consciousness that there's something about this meat. And so Paul says, now that you know that, if you eat it, you are reaffirming their consciousness that there's something special about that. It's not the moral sense, but the concern is for the other person's conscience, even if your conscience is clear. Listen, this is huge. It's not could, it should. And Paul says, it's about the other person's conscience. It's not about yours. Could I do it? Yes. The, the Christian could go eat the meat. The pagan says this meat has been offered to an idol. The Christian could eat, and they could go on their way. And has anything happened to the Christian's faith? Has anything happened to the Christian's life? No. They're still saved, and they're still, right? All those things. But something has happened to the pagan. They saw you eating the meat. And they think, well, that's okay. That's fine. And so now, you put a stumbling block between them and Jesus. And so, in our world where it's about me and I can do what I want. And for Paul to tell us, isn't Paul just irritating? He is so irritating. He says, it's not if you can, it's should you do it. And the determining factor isn't your conscience, it's the other person's conscience. How would that curb some of our behaviors? How would that curb some of the things that we do? And we don't want to hear it. We just don't like it. We want to do what we want to do. I'm free in Jesus. I can do whatever I want. I'm forgiven. And Paul says, yes, all those things are true. But listen, don't use the, what you know to be a stumbling block. And so the point is always the issue of other person's conscience. Look what he says in verse 29. He says, I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. He says, for why is my freedom being judged by another person's conscience. I, if I take part in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So Paul has these rhetorical questions. And the, the reason he says, he says, it's my freedom. I have a freedom, but it also should be cur curtailed by the should, not the could. The believer must be concerned about his actions impact other people. Now listen, I know that sometimes believers, we have this incredible pressure put on us. You're the only Jesus that people ever see. What, and how do we hear that? I need to be perfect. I need to do everything correctly. I need to never mess up. And so we live this life of burden and law. And, and Paul would not recommend that either. That's not what Paul's saying. 
But what he's saying is on those, on those neutral areas, especially interacting with non-believers, I need to be very mindful about what I do because I don't want to, I don't want to bolster their belief that in their paganism or in their unbelief of Jesus. The criterion isn't what pleases me, but it's what pleases other people. You see how Paul's going against the idol of self? Paul does not want them to eat meat sacrificed to idols, but if he eats it, it would bolster the other person's belief in the idol. See, the, listen, this isn't fair, but this is, the, this is the reality. The idolater can have it both ways. The pagan can have it both ways. They can eat the meat because they worship the idol. And then they can, can critique the Christian for eating the meat. That's just how it is. The, the idolater, the, the pagan, has it both ways. He can, he can glory in his idols, and then he can attack the believers for what they're eating. But Paul says, you believers, you can't have it both ways. Listen, following Jesus is hard. There's this narrow way. We are not just fans, but we are followers of Jesus. And so if you eat... This person then has an excuse to eat again. Listen, Paul addressed in chapter 7, he talked about uh, this idea of mixed marriages, of a believer-non-believer marrying, okay? And so... If, uh, and so Paul understood this as a, as a thing in Corinth. There were believers and non-believers uh, getting married. So uh, when we went to, were in Taiwan a few years ago, uh, we went to the pagan temple. And there literally was idols everywhere. I mean, idols, and the fireworks were going off to scare the demons, and people had dressed up in costumes. Now, for us to go there and look at the temple, we were not participating. We were tourists, right? We took pictures and did all that. People would offer their offerings. So there's money and there's fruit and there's food. If I would say, oh, let's just put a pineapple on the, on the altar there. Just that's what everybody does. And I, I would do that. And I can in my mind say, you know, these idols are nothing. And, and these people are operating by fear and delusion. Satan has blinded their minds, all those things. And, and I, so I, I, you know, if I do that and I leave and then people understand, well, aren't you Christians? Yeah, but you don't understand. These idols are nothing. They're not going to separate. What they're going to say is, you as believers, you just put some fruit where we offer sacrifices to our God. So I guess you're saying we're okay. Is that what I'm saying? No, that's not at all what I'm saying. I'm just saying that I have a knowledge that these idols are nothing, but they don't understand that. And that's what Paul's saying. So in this issue of mixed marriage, when Paul says you have a believer and a non-believer, suppose in Taiwan again, this happens, there's a, there's a Christian spouse and a, a non-Christian spouse, and the Christian spouse goes with their non-believer spouse to the temple, and the Christian spouse says, you know, honey, I love you so much, and I want to support you, and I want to I be there for you. And so when you put some incense on, guess what? I'm going to do some incense too. Because I, I, I love you, and I, I know it's nothing, and in my mind I can separate, and I can say the idol's nothing, and, and, and God is the true God, and honey, I'm just going to go with you. What's that non-believing spouse going to think? It's okay. I know you're a Christian, but somehow you're participating in my religion, and so now you're telling me that I'm okay. So what are the dialogues going to be like when the believing spouse tries to convince the non-believing spouse about the exclusivity of Jesus? about he is the way, the truth, and the life, the non-believing spouse is going to be, you know what, you've already participated with me. I don't think we're that much different. You see what happens? And that's all Paul is saying. Is Paul is saying that, that there, is this, there is this interpersonal ethics 
that we put the needs of other people before our own needs. Even though I could do it, doesn't mean I should do it. And really what Paul is telling us, Paul is telling us what love does. Do you know what love does? Love takes the, person, the other person's interests and makes them our interests. That's what love does. Love takes the other person's interests and makes them our interest. Love seeks the good of what? The other person. We live in a, not only do we have the idol of me, we also have the idol of love, romantic love in our culture. The romance section at the bookstore the uh, all the things that we have and so you put those two together it's a dangerous combination and so somehow we have come to the conclusion that love is doing whatever i want and love gives me the permission to do whatever i want and as long as there is love it's okay what is that it's the idol of me and the idol of love and paul says no 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 that's not what love does love seeks the benefit of the other person love is not about you love is about the good of the other person. And that's what he says. He says, seek the good of the other person. Philippians chapter 2, look on your notes. It says this, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, right? He's God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. He emptied himself and became a human being and lived among us. That's what love does. Love does not seek our own advantage it seeks the advantage of other people okay so the first beneficial and constructive thing paul tells us is this seek the good of others got it seek the good of others the second thing he tells us is in verse 31 whether you eat or drink or whatever you do do it all for what the glory of god the way that we do something that's beneficial and constructive is the second thing is we do it all to the glory of god the believer's actions and behavior must be guided by the what? This transcendent purpose. It's not about me. It's not about what I want. It's not about what my friends, my family, my culture wants. What it is, it's what God wants. Christianity doesn't have any dietary restrictions. As a Christian, you are free to eat anything and anything you want. There is no spiritual, uh, there is no spiritual connotation to food for a Christian. Old Testament Jewish uh, had dietary restrictions, right? There were clean things and unclean things and all those kinds. For the Christians, there is no dietary restrictions. None. We can eat uh, shellfish and pork and beef and fish and all that stuff. There's no, there's no sin or there's no spiritual thing, okay? That's where we are as believers. But Paul says this. Even though I could do whatever, should I do those things? And one of the determining factors is not only the good of other people, but it's what? It's to do all for the glory of God. And so for Paul, what he's saying is, he's talking about eating and drinking. And so he said, Paul says this, there is no mundane, even mundane thing of life that you can't offer to God's glory. That as believers, everything we do should be for his glory. What does that mean? Glory means to show forth the real nature and the real character of. And so my life, so whether it's eating a meal or working or having fun, all those things, Paul says, what? is guided by, A, do the best for other people, but also to glorify God. That's what Jesus came to do. Look what he says in John chapter 17. I have brought you glory on earth by finishing the work you gave me to do. But previously in John chapter 4, he says, my food, says Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. So to glorify God from Jesus' perspective, and Paul's using Jesus as our example, Paul says this, Jesus 
came to do the work of the Father. In fact, Jesus, what? He didn't even come to do what he wanted. He came to do what God wanted. And that's how we glorify God. Remember the temptation in the garden is, do you want to be boss or do you want God to be boss? And the idol of me says, no, I'm going to be boss and I'm going to call the shots. And at that point, I'm glorifying me and I'm not glorifying God. The information as to what is right or wrong comes from what? It comes from God's word, not from my feelings not from my culture, not from my family, not from my education. It comes from God's word. And so Paul says, you do everything to God's glory. In verse 32, he says what? Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please any, everyone in every way. For I am, listen, I am not seeking my own good, but what? The good of many, so that many may be saved. Paul is conscious of the fact that he doesn't want to lead people into sin or give an excuse for unbelievers to remain unbelievers. And as we live our lives, there's a distinctiveness about our lives. What does he say in verse 33? I seek the good of many so that they may be saved. Listen, there are people who are going to be offended no matter what. We live in an offense culture. Everybody is offended about everything. It doesn't matter what. You can do anything. You can do anything, literally anything. And somebody's going to be offended. And what Paul is saying is, if you have the choice to offend a believer or a non-believer, you offend the believer. You offend the believer. Because if you offend the non-believer, what's going to happen to the non-believer? They're going to stay a non-believer. And Paul says what? I am not seeking my own good, but I'm seeking the good of many. Even people who are believers, who we have the freedom in Christ, and we have no condemnation, and we are, we are sons and daughters of the king. Even believers can be so terribly offended about anything and everything. And Paul says, That's, don't offend them purposely, but if, if believers are offended, you just let them be offended. You just let them be offended because they're believers. And that's why when you go and have a meal, don't ask all these questions because you don't want to offend them. And so what Paul says, the, for the Christian to go into a home and start to fuss and cross-examine an, an unbeliever about how abominable their meal is, Paul says, don't do it. Have you ever gone into a house, somebody that's not a believer, and they have one of those... Maybe there's a, little, there's a little Buddha thing there or something, you know, little, one of those little heads. And you as a non-believer, if you go in there and you start, oh my word, I can't believe it. You have, like, whoa, you just go, where did you get this? And you start going on and on and on. Do you think that non-believer is going to be like, yes, I repent and I'm going to follow Jesus? Or are they going to be like, oh my, look at the time. I think you need to be going. That's what Paul's saying. But as believers, we tend to want to do that. We tend to want to set everybody straight. and We don't see people as lost. We see them as wrong. And Paul's like, you see them as lost, not as wrong. Because if we see people as wrong, we try to set them right. But if we see them as lost, we try to see them saved. And that's what Paul's saying. I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many Jews and 
Greeks how he, uh, and the church of God, all he's saying is the believers in the church and the non-believers. The last thing he says, real quick, imitate Jesus. This is really the groundwork of all that he's been saying. Imitate Jesus. Chapter, the, the, unfortunately, in your Bibles, there are things, and I've said this many times, called chapters and verses. They should not be there. <laughs> they just shouldn't. They interrupt the flow, and they, they're, they're just, it's just very difficult. And so in your Bible, chapter 11 is probably hooked to chapter 10, where it should be. Verse 1 is kind of buried in there. And what does Paul say? Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now, an imitation is not an exact copy. In other words, Paul's not saying wear a robe and some sandals and walk through life. You know, no, no, no. That's all Paul's saying. What Paul's saying is you be Jesus in your context, in your family, in your workplace. How, whatever that looks like for you, you be Jesus. And so Paul concludes this by bringing all the way back to Jesus. And so what he says is, listen, church, the reason I'm telling you this is because I want you to be like Jesus. Doesn't it always come down to that? To be like Jesus? Self-sacrificial love and giving of ourselves. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, follow God's example as dearly loved children and walk in the way of love just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering. That's what love does. Love what? Gives and sacrifices. Listen, there are stumbling blocks to the gospel. There just are. The God of me is one of those stumbling blocks for, for uh, even as believers, but as for a non-believer to give up the me and say, you know what, I need to surrender my life. Grace is about what Jesus did for me, not about me being a good person, not about me working off all my sins. There's a shift there. And so there, there are some stumbling blocks in the gospel. But here's what Paul's saying. Paul says, you let the gospel be the stumbling block, not you. There's a difference between the call of the gospel and it is challenging. And Jesus says what? It, he's a stone that causes people to trip up and fall. That's true. But Paul's saying you need to make sure that the stumbling block is the gospel and it's not you. Not could I, but should I? Not for my interests, but for the interests of others. We have made an idol of self. There's a story about the three Christs of Ypsilanti, and Dr. Milton Rokich was trying to study mental illness. He was treating three patients with a psychiatric facility in Michigan, and these patients were named Leon, Clyde, and Joseph. They all suffered from delusions of grandeur, a common disorder. However, each of these men also believed they were actually Jesus Christ. They had a bad case of Messiah complex. The doctor worked hard at the task of introducing them to reality, but it was a difficult breakthrough. And for several years, he had these three men live together. They ate their meals together. They slept in the same room together. Every afternoon, they had a therapy session together. And he hoped that by these three men spending time together, that they would see that the others who also thought they were God meant that they weren't really God, and the truth would start to set in. And his approach led to some interesting conversations. So here's a conversation. One of the men would say, I'm the Messiah, the Son of God. I was sent here to save the earth. How do you know, the doctor would ask. God told me, the patient would answer. 
But then another one of the three interjected, I never told you such a thing. And then when the third one got into the act, there was chaos. And when the disagreements were sharp and angry, each Christ would merely assume the other two were just patients in a mental hospital, but he, on the other hand, was the genuine thing. And sadly, the doctor was unsuccessful in his attempts to convince these three men they weren't God. They were trapped in this upside-down reality. I think sometimes God is unsuccessful in his attempts to convince us we're not God as well, that it's not about us. The foundation of reality is this. There is one God and we are not him. That's the foundation of reality. The God of me will make me very lonely because I can't tolerate any equals. I can't tolerate any challenges. I can't tolerate any suggestions. I can't tolerate my imperfections. The God of me will make me very, very lonely. Do you want to be free from the God of me? Then it's by giving all to Jesus. Have you ever noticed that when you work for a goal and then you achieve it, it could be a sports goal, it could be a position at work, it could be anything, you achieve that goal, and what happens right after you achieve the goal? There's a letdown. Because we start looking for things that don't deliver. There's a video clip, you need to watch it, there's a valedictorian, it's been going around Facebook for a couple years, and he's talking, and he says he worked hard to achieve his goal, and at the senior awards banquet, it was announced that he was valedictorian, and he says, I felt great for 15 seconds. And then the 16th second came, and he thought, that's it? His heart wasn't changed? It failed to deliver what he wanted? Listen, we have all been there. We try to achieve and we strive and we just think if I get to this thing, it's going to give me all that I'm looking for. And we get to the thing and it is so terribly disappointing. I just want to get into my favorite school. Guess what happens when you get into your favorite school? There is years of sleepless nights and of works and of work and of tests and all that stuff. It doesn't it doesn't deliver. I just, if I, what if I just get to the, what if I just get to the right position at my job or get a new job? Guess what? You're going to take you with you. You might have been the problem at your old job. <laughs> now you're the problem at the new job. And it doesn't deliver. But here's what Jesus said to the woman at the well. She was looking for something, right? And she was looking for the water, the physical water to satisfy. And in John chapter 4, verse 14, it says, whoever drinks the water I give them, this is Jesus, will what? Will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. You know what we've been doing with the God of me? We're looking for the earthly water to satisfy and we're always thirsty again. We're always thirsty again. Because it always fails to deliver. And so when we have the idol of me, I substitute God for something else. Instead of turning to God for comfort, I turn to entertainment. Instead of turning to God for significance, I turn to careers and accomplishments. Instead of turning to God for security, I turn to money and I turn to investments. Instead of turning to God for joy, I turn to my spouse and my children. Instead of turning to God for hope, I turn to the politicians and just the right legislation to be passed. Instead of turning to God for the truth, I turn to popular opinion and academic consensus. And what I'm doing is I'm drinking the water that will always leave me thirsty again. Always leave me thirsty again. 
Those things aren't necessarily bad, but they can't do for you what only God can do for you. Listen, in all of our lives, the 16th second always comes. Is that it? <laughs> Is that it? And with the God of self, we always get to that 16th, we feel great for 15 seconds, and that 16th second comes, and we're like, Is that it? Then we're on to our next thing, and we're on to the next way to prove that we're a God, and we're on our next thing to prove our worth. And Jesus is saying, I'm the one that'll do that. Would you just drink deeply today of the well of living water? We build cisterns, Prophet Jeremiah reminds us, that have cracks in them, and they are cisterns that don't hold water. That's our lives with the God of me. But Jesus says, if you replace me, for thee, you will have the water that you'll never thirst again. Would you allow God to be God and allow the gospel to cut across the idol of me? And just say, Lord, I'm so tired. I'm so tired of being insecure. I'm so tired of being defensive. I'm tired of, of arrogance and all those things. And Lord, I, I, I'm tired of me being God. And I'm going to give it to you. And here's what God does. When I give it to him, he says, now we're talking. You've been carrying this all this time, and I could have been carrying this for you. God did not create us to be God. He created us to imitate Jesus. And so as you and I struggle with this idol of me, listen, it's always there. Oh, man, it is always, always there. Would you allow yourself to come to Jesus, the living water? Let's stand and let's pray. Father, we look so desperately for the things of this earth to satisfy. And Father, we sometimes don't ask the question, should I do something? It's only if I could. I can do it. I'm not going to do it. But Father, would you help us as believers to seek the good of other people? Father, to do what love does, and that's to put the needs of other people, make them our own interest. Would you help us to to truly imitate Jesus, a self-sacrificial giving love. And, and Father, would you just, th this morning as we have an opportunity just to, just to smash the idol of self, we get so offended, we get so worked up, we get so worried and anxious because we think it all is about us. But Lord, it's all about you. And would you help us to do all for your glory? We love glory for self, puffing up and making us feel like we're something. But God, it's, not, it's only until we're in Jesus that we are truly something. So Father, would you help us keep our eyes on the cross, be more than just a fan, that we would be a true follower of Jesus, allow him to be the Lord of our lives. So Father, over these next few moments, as we have opportunity to pray, opportunity to sing, opportunity just to reflect, as Lord, we want you to be the God in our lives. And Father, that we drink of the living water of Jesus. And we'll never thirst again when we fill it with him. We're always so thirsty for the next thing, the next thrill, the next accolade, the next accomplishment, the next, the next, the next. And God, in Jesus, our thirsts are filled and fulfilled. Minister to us over these next few moments as we have opportunity to continue to surrender our lives to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.